And so we wrap up our study then this morning, our study of God the Spirit. And as I said last week, I planned to finish this at the time I preached in quarantine, but I really felt like I was going to shortchange a couple of really important truths related to our life in the Spirit. Now, just to give you a bird's-eye view of the terrain we've covered so far over these last few months, we, have, we began with the personhood of the Holy Spirit. He is a person, he is divine, and that led us to a study of the Trinity, that God is a triune God. There is one God and three persons. And we talked about the Holy Spirit's role within the Trinity, what his mission, the, the tasks that he has taken up as the third person in the Trinity. Before Christ's coming, before Jesus' birth, we saw that the Holy Spirit's activity included creation, empowerment of individuals for special acts of service, wisdom, giving Revelation, that's another thing we saw, that the Holy Spirit was instrumental in revealing God's will, whether that's a, prof- a prophetic declaration or whether that was writing those down as Scripture. But also we saw that one of the key roles of the Holy Spirit was one of promise, that the Old Testament promises a future and greater work and presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was promised, first of all, to be present in a special way with the Messiah, God's Savior King, and secondly, to be present in a new way with God's people. During Christ's life then, the Holy Spirit's special work was demonstrated beginning even with his birth, his conception even before he was born. The Holy Spirit was present and active in Jesus' baptism, his kind of authentication as God's son. He was present in Jesus' temptation. In fact, it is the Holy Spirit who leads Jesus into the wilderness to face temptation as an initial kind of rite of passage to begin his formal ministry. The Holy Spirit also was present throughout his ministry. It was the Holy Spirit who was empowering Christ and accomplishing things. It was also the Holy Spirit who was involved in his resurrection, giving life to Christ, and thus will someday give life to our own mortal bodies. So Christ's life then was marked by the special presence of the Holy Spirit. And we see all of the Old Testament promises fulfilled in Jesus' life. Some 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus then returns to the Father by physically ascending into the heavens. And following his ascension, which was visible and bodily, Jesus fulfills his promise to send the Helper the spirit of truth. And so the Holy Spirit is given at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. He is poured out on the apostles and then given to those who believe 
the apostolic proclamation, the preaching of the gospel. This was the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it was the beginning of the new covenant, its operation, which had been promised by the Old Testament prophets. So now, in his new covenant work, the Holy Spirit restores us to God. He restores us by revealing the gospel, convicting us, by regenerating us, giving us new life, by indwelling us, by sealing us, which is preserving or keeping us. He also makes us God's people. He sets us apart, sanctifies us as God's people. He adopts us and includes us in God's family. He joins us to Christ's body. And he unites us. He makes us one with Christ, and he makes us one with each other. He also then transforms us. He transforms us through setting us free from the power of sin and the power of the law. He transforms us by strengthening us. He dwells within us, and he gives us strength and endurance. He transforms us through spiritual gifts, Not that my spiritual gift transforms me or that your spiritual gift transforms you, but the Holy Spirit has gifted you to be an instrument of transformation in other people's lives. He also transforms us through the scriptures. All scripture is God-breathed. Lastly, the Holy Spirit transforms us through our participation. And it's this last point, the Holy Spirit transforms us through our participation that we really want to dig into a little bit today. The Holy Spirit is doing a work of transformation. He's changing each one of us, and he's changing us as a people. And we are called to pursue that. We are called to pursue godliness. We're called to pursue holiness We must pursue the life of the Spirit. And Father, we come before you this morning and just ask as we look at these passages that even in this study, Spirit of God, you would be renewing us in the image of our Creator, that you would be doing this work of transformation. Amen. Now, the New Testament uses two key images to exhort us to participate in the Holy Spirit's transforming work, walking and being filled. We are called to walk by the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, and we are called to be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians chapter 5, right? So let's start with Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16, we are to walk by the Spirit. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Okay, so every Christian is caught up in a conflict, And if you're a believer and you care about holiness and pleasing God, you know this conflict. It is a conflict between the spirit 
and the flesh. Now, this is not a conflict between the spirit, meaning your spirit, that immaterial part of you, your soul, and the flesh. It is a conflict between the Holy Spirit and yourself. So it's not spirit, soul, versus the physical body. It is the Holy Spirit versus the flesh. And the flesh is simply, I think this is the best way to put it, it is the impulse to sin. Just because you have become a Christian doesn't mean you don't sin. Not yet. Someday you won't. When God completely changes you, brings you to glory. That will either happen through death or through Jesus' return before you die. But either way, you will one day be completely free from the presence of sin and no longer have the struggle that you have today. But until then, there is still an impulse to sin. That is the flesh. It is the impulse that continues to exert influence over us. Even though we've come to Christ, even though we've been forgiven and cleansed and have received the Spirit, it is the flesh that makes us still subject to temptation. If you didn't have the flesh, you wouldn't even be tempted by sin. So the conflict is a war of desires. This war of desires is between the Holy Spirit and this nagging impulse toward sin. Paul says here, these are opposed to each other. But, and this is the good news, the Holy Spirit is more powerful. It is the Spirit of God who triumphs in our lives. It is the Spirit of God who empowers us, who directs us, because, verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. This is working out, really, the promise of Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, which during this series on the Holy Spirit, we've seen numerous times, haven't we? And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is what Paul's talking about here. You are enabled to walk by the spirit precisely because you are not under the law. But instead, God has put his spirit within you to cause you to walk in his statutes. And this is why we must walk by the spirit. That is, walk according to the spirit, according to the spirit's will, according to the spirit's presence, according to the spirit's power. That is how we actively resist the flesh and not gratify its desires. So there is this conflict between the spirit and the flesh, our impulse to sin. We can either gratify the desires of the flesh or we can walk by the spirit. We are to walk by the spirit. Paul continues in verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. The works of the flesh 
are the behaviors, the way of living that the flesh attempts to drag us into. And Paul lists several examples here, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And he concludes them with a warning that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If that is the pattern of a person's life, that is the summation of their life. That is not a believer. That is not someone who inherits the kingdom of God. So those are the works of the flesh. But, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit, in contrast, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. We are to walk by the Spirit. So walking by the Spirit produces this kind of living. And it is the Spirit who is doing the work. It is the fruit of the Spirit. But just because the Spirit produces the fruit doesn't mean there's no effort or pursuit on our part. You can see how the fruit of the Spirit begins with walking by the Spirit and ends with, in verse 25, keeping in step with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit now dwelling within us leads us in victory over the enchantment, uh, the enchantments of sin. The enchantments of sin. To walk by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit, then means to treasure holiness as God does. It means to take practical, deliberate, decisive steps to put yourself in the path of obedience. It means to believe God's word over lies and to resist temptation. To walk by the Spirit means prioritizing spiritually fruitful pursuits in life over idle, empty things, as well as the wrong things. It means following the path of holiness and integrity even when it's painful. That is walking by the Spirit. Galatians 5 is one of the clearest passages calling for your participation and mine in the Holy Spirit's transforming, sanctifying work in your life. Walk by the Spirit. Another is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, we'll begin in verse 15. We are to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. 
Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, there are a couple things to note here. First, notice that these verses give us three contrasts that explain how we are to walk because the days are evil. And I've, if you're looking at the slide, I've attempted to show this by the colors of the text, right? Not as unwise, but as wise. Not being foolish, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Not getting drunk, but being filled with the Spirit. So, being filled with the Spirit is a parallel, then, with wisdom, walking in wisdom. It's a parallel with understanding the will of the Lord. Also notice that following these commands are a series of pursuits that display what wisdom, what understanding the Lord's will, and what being filled with the Spirit looks like. Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. These verses, beginning with verse 15 all the way through 21, are one big long sentence. And these activities flow out of walking in wisdom, understanding what the will of the Lord is, and especially being filled with the Spirit, which brings us back to those words, be filled with the Spirit in verse 18. What does Paul mean for us to do here? It's obviously a metaphor, but how is Paul using it? It is a command. This is an imperative. It's not an indication of what can happen. It's not a promise of what will happen. It's a command. We are to go forth and be filled with the Spirit. But it is also passive. We are to actively participate in something that is being done to us. Now, it sounds weird at first, but we actually have similar constructions. We communicate in similar ways. If I say to my son, go get your hair cut, I'm obviously telling him to go do something, to participate in something that somebody else is doing to him, aren't I? Go get your hair cut. That's very different than saying, go cut your hair which would not end well for anyone. So go get your hair cut. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled is also a verb that means doing something in an ongoing way. It's to be repeated. It's to be maintained. It's to be the ongoing practice. Keep on being filled with the Spirit. This is a practice of the Christian's life. Pentecostal teaching generally treats the filling of the Spirit and the baptism of the Spirit as essentially the same work. 
Now, as we've been studying the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, I've said from the very beginning that it was not the point of my series to, to go after every inaccurate view of the Holy Spirit. That wasn't the way I was um, approaching this topic and this teaching of Scripture. However, at certain points, what the Scriptures say, I do find contradict some common understandings or beliefs, and Pentecostalism in particular. And we've talked about a couple of those by necessity as we've worked through this study. This is another one. Pentecostal teaching generally teaches that the filling of the Spirit and the baptism of the Spirit are the same thing. A believer experiences the filling of the Spirit when the Holy Spirit comes upon a person and supernaturally empowers him or her for some special service. It might be to preach and proclaim the gospel. It might be to conduct spiritual warfare. It might be to endure persecution. It might be to receive divine revelation. It's accompanied often by speaking in tongues. That's a sign that you are being filled with the Spirit. It, for some, it even means performing miracles. To be filled with the Spirit is to be able to, to perform miraculous works. Sometimes this is called being anointed by the Spirit, and that might be terminology you've come across or heard. Someone's anointed by the Spirit. That's synonymous with being filled with the Spirit. On the surface of things, there are some grounds for this, aren't there? After all, in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, we're told that the apostles were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And when the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the council of Jewish leadership, put Peter and John on trial for preaching Christ, for preaching the gospel, Peter answers them, filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 4, verse 8. So the Holy Spirit comes upon Peter and enables him to proclaim the gospel and even a confrontation to the Jewish leadership, rebuking them. They've done this thing and they need to repent. However, in both of these cases and others, and there are other texts that use the word filled in a similar way, Luke uses a different word than Paul uses in Ephesians 5, verse 18. The two words overlap in meaning, but Luke, and by the way, Luke and Paul are the only authors in Scripture that use, in the New Testament, that use this image of being filled with the Spirit. Luke always consistently uses this different word to describe the filling of the Spirit that empowers someone in a special way. And it really echoes the way the Old Testament used the phrase filled with the Spirit or filled by the Spirit, doesn't it? We've seen some of those texts. The Holy Spirit comes upon someone or rushes upon someone or fills them and they utter prophetic Words, or they do some great deed of might. Luke does use the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 5.18 in the same way only once. And that's in Acts chapter 13, verse 52. And it's a summary of the disciples' 
reaction to rejection of the gospel. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That is the same verb that Paul uses in Ephesians 5.18. My point is simply this. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5.18 is not commanding us to seek a filling and anointing of the Spirit as an ecstatic experience through which we will be able to speak divine revelation or rebuke demons or some other great spiritual feat. Ephesians 5.18 is not setting that as an expectation for the Christian life. Ephesians 5.18 is in some measure talking about maturity. It's talking about spiritual life, living as a spirit, capital S, spirit-oriented person. By the way, Luke does use the same word as an adjective at times when he describes certain people as full of the Spirit. Remember Stephen? Stephen, one of the early disciples, the first martyr for the Christian faith in Acts chapter 7? Stephen, on three different occasions, is described as a man full of the Spirit, using a form of the same word as Ephesians 5.18. He was someone who, capital S, was spirit-oriented in his life. Now, another view, and probably the most common alternative to what I'm calling a Pentecostal view, is that filled with the Spirit means to be controlled by the Spirit. And many of you have probably heard this explanation, that if you are filled with the Spirit... You are controlled by the Spirit. And sometimes this is even illustrated as a hand going into a glove. In the same way that a hand fills the glove, and now the glove does exactly what the hand does, that that's your life when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills your life, and the way you operate and go about life is a spiritual way of living. Some will even say that being filled by the Spirit is yielding, and they'll They'll capitalize or focus on this word yielding. To be filled with the Spirit means to yield yourself to the Spirit. This is partly based on the contrast with being drunk with wine. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, in the same way that alcohol controls you when you've had too much of it, that's how you are to be controlled by the Spirit. But I think it's best to understand being filled with the Spirit simply as being dominated by the presence of, and work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It is that capital S, Spirit orientation. As opposed to being dominated by the old life, by the flesh, Galatians chapter 5. Our lives are to be dominated with capital S, spiritual pursuits not sinful pursuits. See, being drunk with wine is not emphasizing control. What does Paul even highlight about being drunk with wine here? It is debauchery. Being drunk is not being controlled by alcohol, but being unable to control yourself. That's debauchery. So the opposite of being drunk is not spirit control, 
but self-control, which in Galatians chapter 5 is a fruit of the Spirit, you see. So a bunch of Spirit-filled persons make a Spirit-filled people then who address one another with singing, make melody to the Lord, give thanks always for everything to God, and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. All of these pursuits then that flow out of being filled with the Spirit cycle back and now accomplish being filled with the Spirit. That's how these things work. It's not just a one-way thing. Being filled with the Spirit produces these things. Pursuing these things accomplishes what is commanded, being filled with the Spirit. So, when you trust God's promises in the face of suffering and you rejoice in Him, you are being filled with the Spirit. When you forgive someone, who has wronged you, maybe even repeatedly, or continues to wrong you, you are being filled with the Spirit. When we stand together and we sing together and we hear each other's voices declare God's goodness and sovereignty and worth and Christ's unending love for us, and are lifted up, you are being filled with the Spirit. When you humble yourself and consider someone else more important than yourself, you are being filled with the Spirit. When you commune with your heavenly Father in His Word, dwelling on his glory and his perfections and the glory to come, you are being filled with the Spirit. And let me just say, there is an amazing parallel with Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, which reads, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing to one another, admonishing and teaching one another, And it's these same series, not word for word, but so similar, that flow out of that. That there has to be a connection between being filled with the Spirit and the Word of Christ dwelling in you richly. What I'm saying is that this is not to be a a spotty... um, ecstatic experience that you go for every day and you're seeking and you're praying. This is to be a way of life for the believer. In the end, really, Paul is saying in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit, exactly what he's saying in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, walk by the Spirit. And verse 25, keep in step with the Spirit. This brings us back then to where we began today, as well as, I think, making a fitting conclusion to this entire series. The Holy Spirit is transforming us through our participation. 
There are many things that the Holy Spirit does in our lives that we are powerless to do on our own. We could never see the gospel for what it really is unless the Holy Spirit were to convict us and reveal that to us and enable us to see and respond with faith. We could never give ourselves new life. Only the Holy Spirit can regenerate us. The Holy Spirit makes us one with Christ. He makes us one as God's people. And all of these works are of God's sovereign grace in our lives. It is God's initiation. It is God doing these things. But the Holy Spirit also is changing us. He is renewing us in the image of our creator. He is causing us to grow in holiness. He is commanding us to participate in that work by pursuing him. And I'm glad. I'm glad. Aren't you? Even if it's painful at times, and it is, because this work of transformation requires Sacrifice. That's why Jesus said, if anyone would be my disciple, he must pick up his cross daily and follow me. That is not a promise of a life of ease. The Holy Spirit is doing this work as we participate, as we continue to submit ourselves to him. And I'm glad because I don't want to stay the same. I want to know God. I want to be like Christ. And you do too. All that the Holy Spirit has accomplished and is accomplishing fulfills God's ancient promise of a new covenant. We are the, the people of God before the end. We are the culmination, the churches, the culmination of all of God's redemptive work and plan throughout history. The next thing to happen in the program, the very next thing, is for Christ to return. And the Holy Spirit's presence among us fulfilling God's promise of a new covenant also fulfills Jesus' promise to send us the helper, doesn't it? The helper, the counselor, the comforter, who will faithfully keep us until Jesus returns for us. Let's pray. So, Lord, there is so much in your word regarding the work of your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would help us by your spirit to continue this pursuit of holiness, godliness, transformation. Spirit, we know that you dwell within us. You have taken up residence within us. And it is your presence that keeps us, seals us for the day of redemption. And that dwelling within us, Holy Spirit, you are renewing us. You are transforming us. And we long to cooperate. 
Continue to grant us victory over the flesh and its nagging desires to draw us back into the ways of the world. We know that you will triumph in the end and that, Lord, just as you called us to yourself, just as by your grace you chose us, that by your grace you peeled back the scales from our eyes to see the gospel, Lord, that by your grace you will one day complete that work, that you will change us completely when you glorify us. And in that hope this morning, we praise you and thank you. Amen.